Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Wednesday, February 7th. I'm Hannah Floor. Petersburg's airport might be getting an upgrade in the distant future. The State Department of Transportation has asked a state board that evaluates airports for funds to replace parts of the runway and some of the airport's light fixtures. As KFSK's Shelby Herbert reports, Petersburg's Borough Assembly voted to support that initiative at their regular meeting this week. James A. Johnson Airport is a major transportation hub for Petersburg, which is on an island with no roads in or out. The airport receives a significant amount of the community's passengers and mail, but parts of its runway and blast pad are sinking into the surrounding muskeg, and some of its critical light fixtures are waterlogged or falling into general disrepair. That's according to the Alaska Department of Transportation, which has proposed to rehabilitate the airport. Petersburg Borough Manager Steve Giesbrecht says that the need for repairs wasn't even remotely on the borough's radar. He says the airport isn't in any immediate danger of falling apart. But fixing problems now is an opportunity to keep the airport, and especially the runway, up to Federal Aviation Administration specs. This came out of the blue for us. The Department of Transportation Airport Group said, hey, your project has made the list, and uh, we want a letter of support. So sounds like this is preventative maintenance in some ways and um, improving some things that need to be worked on. There's no price tag on the repairs yet, but Giesbrecht is confident that state and federal entities will foot the bill. I don't have a dollar amount, but this is funded through FAA. Petersburg Airport is considered an FAA facility. Basically, the state will do the work and FAA will fund it. This does not involve any funding from the borough. The state is looking at repaving the runway and taxiway, as well as the aviation expansion area, which is almost two decades old. They also want to replace or repair the airport's runway and taxiway lights, along with nine of its floodlight poles. Petersburg Assembly members responded to the idea with enthusiasm. This is uh, the FAA being proactive on our local airport, and I'm glad for the support. And with jokes at the expense of Petersburg's existing airport facilities. Must be a mistake here because I don't see any item for a a new terminal with a cute little bar and restaurant in it. Send it back. What a new seaplane facility. (laughs) The Assembly's resolution to support the state's proposal to rehabilitate Petersburg's airport passed unanimously. The state's transportation department will bring their funding request, along with Petersburg's letter of support, to the airport project evaluation board at their meeting this month. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. A condominium developer in Juneau announced this week that it would sell units at market prices. That's not unusual, but it surprised many Juneau residents because the developer borrowed money from the city's affordable housing fund. Katie Anastas reports. Last summer, a sign by a construction site on Glacier Highway advertised a development called Ridgeview, with apartments for rent coming in fall of 2023. For Juneau resident Carissa Armstrong, it was a glimmer of hope for more rental options in Alaska's capital city. I make enough money to be able to kind of afford your standard two-bedroom in Juneau, but there's just nothing available. By winter, the apartments for rent text on the sign was covered up. An email sent to those who signed up for the Ridgeview waitlist said the new units would be available for purchase at market price. On Monday, Ridgeview announced online that one-bedroom units would start at $375,000. 
Two-bedroom units would start at $495,000. Those prices surprised many Juno residents because Ridgeview's developer is borrowing $1.2 million from the Juno Affordable Housing Fund. Assemblymember Alicia Huskandis chairs the Lands, Housing, and Economic Development Committee. She says she's heard from Juno residents who are upset about Ridgeview's prices. I definitely heard from people who are just like, this is from a loan from the Affordable Housing Fund, emphasizing that to me, and then saying, so you think, you know, a two-bedroom condo for half a million dollars is affordable? And I don't. But she still thinks loaning the money was the right decision. I think having something built that otherwise would not be built is good. And so, I mean, yes. And also it being a loan. If I gave a grant and that was, and those were the prices and it was condos, no, I would not feel that way. But it's a loan and there's that many more units in Juneau. So I do see that as the right move. The city invites developers, nonprofits, and tribal governments to apply for grants and loans from the Affordable Housing Fund each year. Now the assembly is considering terms and conditions they'd like to set for future loans. On Monday, city manager Katie Kester presented a potential list. Many of them are already in the program's guidelines, like the minimum number of affordable units for-profit developers have to include. Others are more specific, like requiring units to be rentals or prohibiting short-term rentals. There are pros and cons to uh, adhering to these guidelines. And of course, the assembly can still do whatever you, the assembly wants whenever it wants. I mean, obviously within charter and, and law guidelines. But Kester said this is a chance for the assembly to more clearly set expectations for themselves, potential applicants, and the public. She said they're considering a fundamental question. Is uh, the assembly okay awarding funds through the house, through the affordable housing fund if there's no affordability component? Rooftop Properties, the developer behind Ridgeview, applied for a loan from the Affordable Housing Fund to help build 24 units. The Assembly approved an ordinance that said five units would be for people earning up to 80% of the area median income. But a few months later, former city manager Rory Watt suggested the Assembly remove the affordability requirement. He said the developer wanted 25 years to pay off the loan if it required five affordable units. That is a long time to tie up $1.2 million um, for that many units. Instead, Watt suggested a shorter-term loan for a market rate project. Former Assembly member Carol Treem said adding any units could help lower the overall cost of housing in Juneau. Our aim is on affordability, and one way we do that is through this directed requirement of having a certain number of units be reserved for a certain level of income. But another way we do that is just adding any housing unit. Member Wahal Gadak, Barbara Blake, opposed removing the affordable housing requirement. To me, that is not what the intent of the affordable housing fund is for. Um, so I'm going to be a no vote on this. She was the only assembly member to vote against moving the revised ordinance forward. The assembly passed it in May without objection. When asked via email about the decision to sell the condos rather than rent them out, developer Garrett Johnson replied that condos provided the most flexibility. He said the condos' owners could rent them out in the future. Hugh Scandy says every affordable housing fund grant or loan helps the city refine the process. And I would like us to make sure that 
funds that are in the affordable housing fund are resulting in an affordability requirement. The two latest projects recommended for funding are set for public hearing on Monday night. Both propose a monthly rent of $1,400 for some or all of their units. In Juneau, I'm Katie Anastas. Governor Mike Dunleavy honored several Alaskans late last month at the State of the State Address. They included people from Wrangell involved in the deadly landslide in November. I've been governor during 35 state disaster declarations. That averages out to one almost every 54 days. As Alaskans, we know it's not a matter of disaster strikes, but when. As governor, I also know that I can always count on Alaskans to pull together. Dunleavy talked about how Wrangell's community took action immediately after the landslide, which destroyed three homes and covered 450 feet of highway. He mentioned the sole survivor, Christina Floorschutz, and named six people who perished, Otto Floorschutz and the Heller family, Timothy, Ben, and their children, Mara, who is 16 years old, 11-year-old Kara, and 12-year-old Derek. Besides memorializing those who died and those who survived, Dunleavy honored Wrangell's mayor, Patty Gilbert. Mayor Patty Gilbert is here today to represent her community. She'll be the first person to tell you that she doesn't deserve any credit for the actions of those who rushed headlong into danger. Mayor Mayor Gilbert may not have ended up covered head to toe in mud like those first responders. He gave a brief timeline of Gilbert's life. He mentioned her work as a teacher all over the country and in Venezuela. He talked about how she and her husband ended up in Alaska. In Cordova, she worked at Prince William Sound Community College. And she and her husband then moved to Wrangell, where she taught for approximately 20 years. Dunleavy acknowledged Gilbert's activism as the president of the Wrangell Medical Center Foundation. They help raise travel funds and expenses for Alaskans who need cancer treatment. Gilbert also raises money for health careers and student scholarships. Mayor Gilbert gives back to the community that has given her so much, and we're glad she's here tonight. And Mayor, I'm going to ask you to stand and be recognized for all the hard work you do and the first responders across the state. On top of her activism, she has served two terms on Wrangell City Council, followed by serving as a borough assembly member. Gilbert traveled to Juneau for the governor's address. The crowd gave her a standing ovation. The food Alaskans eat often travels thousands of miles by barge or truck, but an after-school program in the Matanuska Susitna borough aims to give students the skills to fish for their own meals, even in the middle of winter. As Tim Rocky reports, during a recent ice fishing outing, one lucky angler went home with dinner. The sun is starting to set as a half-dozen students prepare to head out on the ice on a recent afternoon at Wasilla Lake. Instructor Kevin Vaca gives a safety briefing and does an important checkup. Does anyone want hot chocolate? Is, he, is that a yes? Before the adults help students punch holes in the ice. The instructors make sure everyone's hook is baited with a small piece of shrimp. Vaca is the lead field instructor for Onward and Upward, a nonprofit based in Palmer that educates teens about the outdoors. On this day, middle and high school students from the Kinnick tribe are learning about ice fishing as part of their regular after school program. 
Last week, they made their own polls. Today, they get to put them to use as they try to catch rainbow trout. I think they're a big part of our culture here in Alaska. Um, whether you're Alaska native or not, um, they're, they're, everyone fishes out here. Ruby Wright is one of the instructors with Onward and Upward. She's teaching the students about food sovereignty while they fish. What do you think that means? It's kind of related to ice fishing. What does food sovereignty, this big word, mean? What do you think, Izzy? Food, absolutely. So we're teaching you how to catch your own food. Why is that important? The Alaska Farmland Trust estimates that 95% of food consumed by Alaskans is imported from the lower 48. Indigenous Alaskans have always harvested nearby plants and animals for food. And although subsistence activities may slow down in the winter, wild food sources are still available if you know where to look. The instructors are hoping that teaching about the importance of food sovereignty will encourage students to take ownership of their next meal. Vaca tells students they might pull a rainbow trout or arctic char from the lake. We think it's important for students to realize that they can do this um, as as a person, and it's it's super easy for them to get into. You know, that all you need is a little piece of wood and some string, some, some fishing line and a hook, and you're able to go out and fish for your own food and put food on the dinner table for your families. The students are using a technique called jigging where they bounce the line up and down to make it look like their bait is moving. It's been about a half hour since hooks went in the water, and no one has gotten so much as a bite. It's starting to look like everyone might go home empty-handed. Until... A nibble? Yeah. we have a bite? Yeah. Oh, we got a fish? Uh, okay. <laughs> Pull it up nice and slow. Kiana Tassie goes to Teelan Middle School. He's still pulling. Yep, so you got to pull him up, right? You want to fight him up. There you go, pull it up. Go I got him. There we go, we got one. Kevin, you have to identify it. Oh, yep, perfect rainbow trout. Is it big enough? Yeah. Tassie pulls a 14-inch rainbow trout from the ice, the only fish caught by anyone in the group. I was just like sitting here with uh, my sister, and then I felt like a little boop, 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 boop on my um like on my line, and I was like, oh my gosh, I got a nibble. Is this the first time you've ever caught a fish ice yeah. fishing? Uh, never gone ice fishing, but it's the first time I ever caught a fish. The light from the sun is mostly gone about an hour after the students got their lines wet. The group packs up and heads home, but they'll be back next week to learn more about how and why to go ice fishing. For now, at least one student has access to a meal that wasn't shipped here and a memory she won't soon forget. In Wasilla, I'm Tim Rocky. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.